paying too much for health insurance? Frustrated by high deductibles, network restrictions, and increasing premiums? There's a better way. Christian Healthcare Ministries. CHM is a Christian community delivering a robust, faith based solution to the high cost of healthcare. If your current health insurance has become more of a racket than a remedy, take back control of your healthcare at around half the price. Learn more and enroll today at chministries.org. That's chministries.org. Welcome to the Untold Story podcast, everybody. I'm Martha McCallum, and I am really happy to have Jack Carr with us. Jack is former Navy SEAL sniper, of course, and he's now a number one New York Times bestselling author. And we have a lot to talk to him about today. I just want to give everybody a little background, and then I want Jack to do that for us as well. Um, He led special operations teams as a team leader, a platoon commander, a troop commander, task unit commander, 20 years in naval special warfare, and then transitioned to be a junior officer in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, But, Jack, thank you, first of all, for your service, Uh, amazing commitment and dedication to our country, and um, for all you do to help people understand what's going on. So thank you so much for being here today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. So the one thing I like to do that's a little different on the Untold Story podcast, Jack, is to just begin by giving you a minute or two to tell everybody about yourself. For those who are not aware of, of your background and where you're sort of coming to all of this from, give them that background, that untold story of Jack Carr. Well, I guess it starts uh, early on as a, as a reader, and I've always been a student uh, my whole life. I'm continue to be a student today uh, of my genre that I now now write in in the thriller thriller genre. But that's been my my whole life. My mom was a librarian, so I grew up surrounded by books and a love of reading. And very early on, I knew I wanted to serve my country in uniform. Uh, my grandfather was a Marine, killed in, in World War II, so I grew up with all his his medals and his his wings. He flew the Corsair, um, but it was also just in my blood from a very early age. And I found out what seals were at age seven. So my mom being a librarian, we started to research. And my takeaways were that uh, SEALs were some of the most elite special operators in the arsenal. And the training was some of the toughest devised by a modern military. So, uh, but but that's early 80s, early to mid 80s. So you can get to the end of the internet by going to the library and going to the end of that shelf that talks about special operations, which was mostly focused on Vietnam at the time. Mm -hmm. So then I start reading thrillers by guys like Tom Clancy and Nelson DeMille and AJ Quinnell and JC Pollock and Mark Holden and all these guys who had protagonists with backgrounds that I wanted in real life one day. So I've been a reader my entire life. Uh, I, one of my first memories of the 1979 uh, Iranian hostage crisis and knowing what I was going to do later in life, even at age 10, seeing Time and Newsweek and the Beirut barracks bombing come across our kitchen table. Uh, Walter Conkright talking about these things on TV and later other, uh, other newscasters on TV talking about these different terrorist events. I knew that would be my war, even at that young age. So uh, I would read all the Newsweek articles, the Time articles, later TV. WA 847, Achille Laurel, Pan Am 103. So all of those things were very seminal events uh, in the history of our relationship with the Middle East and our foreign policy towards terrorism, non-state actors, and some 
state actors. So that's all a part of me. And then it was into the SEAL teams where I continued to be a student because that's what I owed the guys I was taking downrange. So always, always a student, always reading. Uh, and then as I got out, that study of warfare and the fan side of the house from reading those thrillers, uh, plus the experience on the ground in Iraq and Afghanistan all came together as I got out to start writing these thrillers. But my first nonfiction book is on the 1983 favorite barracks bombing and that comes out in 2024 so uh, i want to keep these lessons alive so the future generations don't have to learn them in blood uh, and that's just what i figure is the least that least that i can do yeah i, I mean it, i think it's an amazing catalog of emotional and you know literal experience because you dug into these books and these stories and i really commend your mom uh you know it's nothing like growing up with a librarian to make sure i grew up with a teacher third grade teacher so um to, to make sure that when you're curious about something you dig into books and it's something i think that is really missing so much from our education today and i think that's one of the reasons and i don't want to get far afield here but it's one of the reasons i think we have all of this stuff going on on college campuses because people are children they don't have a good education so they're not taught history and understanding all sides of these stories um they're picking it up sort of on in dribs and drabs and listening to what people tell them and not really digging too much deeper than that i think in a lot of cases um you know exactly. i guess one of the things that that one of the first questions i have for you based on your background is having read all those stories and, and read Tom Clancy and all of those, when you actually got there as a SEAL, what, what struck you as not at all like what you thought it was going to be or what you read in your books? Well, I got to my first SEAL team in October of 1997. So my vision and my peers' vision of what we would be stepping into were the based on influence of popular culture, movies, TV shows, and those books. So when we crossed the quarterdeck and checked in, we thought we were going to be issued the top secret pager and it would go off later that afternoon. We'd fly off to save the world and be back in time for beers. And that was <laughs> not how it was in 1997. Uh, but when two uh, September 11th, 2001, that's when we really started to do what we thought we were coming in to do uh, at the beginning. So then it was off to the races after that. But uh, the surprise was before that, we weren't doing those types of operations. Mm. After that, that's when we really got to do what we came in to do. And as a SEAL, your job is really, anybody in the military, is to be as prepared as you possibly can to go to war. And that call came then on September 11th. Yeah, indeed it did. Um, you know, you just mentioned the 1979 hostage crisis. And I had Dan Senor on yesterday. And I wanted our team to find video of that because I remember watching the news as a child and seeing these images and remembering the national feeling of fear for these individuals, humiliation that this was being done to Americans as they were marched through the streets in Tehran with their blindfolds on. And yep. now that I we hear that there are more than 200 people being held hostage right now, some of them potentially Americans. And also we have thousands of, of Americans living in um, in Gaza and I'm wondering if they're going to take more hostages because they have the opportunity to do that because those people are having trouble getting out. How do you think these hostages are going to be used in this situation, Jack? I think we've had a, a paradigm shift over the last two weeks where from 1979 up until two weeks ago that uh, hostage taking has worked for the enemy. They have gotten uh, a lot in return for hostages in deals over the last uh, few 
decades. Uh, this time, it seems as though that model has shifted a little bit in that they took so many, they were so brutal, obviously specifically targeting the weakest among Israel's population, and then putting a lot of these hostages in situations where it is so difficult to locate and then find them via special operations and the means we have available. And I'm not saying we're not trying. I'm sure we are trying everything we possibly can to get our hostages back. Uh, but it seems as though the dynamic is a little different today than it was two and a half weeks ago at the beginning of this. So uh, we will see that play out in the next couple weeks. But with the amount of hostages they have and where we're hearing they're located uh, underground, of course, there are things that you can do with uh, with gas and water and things like that to uh, to get people out of underground um, caverns and caves and systems like that. But it's one of the toughest situations that I can imagine dealing with as uh, the tactical level. So so we'll see. But this does seem a little different than what they've done in the past kidnapping one, two, three, four, five, six type people and then trading them for a thousand, a thousand plus um, or a few specific people that they really want out that are high ranking. So uh, so we'll see. It does seem like this is different, but um, but really the only people that can answer that are the uh, uh, the people on the ground in Israel that are making these determinations. And and we'll see. Yeah. I mean, it's such a big question mark. And you think about these people and the hell that they're going through. We've seen the one, the individuals who were released just hearing bits and pieces about the spider web of tunnels down there and um, the sort of mixed treatment that they received. Uh, you know, the woman talked about being beaten by uh, civilians in the streets when they first brought her into Gaza. And then, you know, she said she was relatively well cared for when she was held by Hamas militants. And of course, it's, it's got to be impacted in some way by the fact that they still have her husband. So I, I can only imagine that she wants to be, you know, careful, Jack, right, about what she's saying. Oh, yeah, it is tough. I'm sure she'll get the uh, the full debrief by the U.S. and uh, Israeli special operations, and they'll add that to uh, to what they have as far as plans to go in and rescue these people. But as uh, as you remember from uh, the war on terror for 20 years, if someone was captured, whether it was someone working with a non-governmental organization, uh, a journalist or someone who just uh, shouldn't have been there, probably uh, everything stopped on the battlefield, particularly for special operations forces. So anything that we were doing at the time got put on pause and all assets and effort was focused on recovering that journalist or that non-governmental organization worker. Um, and I'm sure that is what things what's going on right now. That focus is our hostages. That's that's the that's the pact we have with citizens around the world, that if something happens that uh, they're a citizen in the United States, every single effort will be made to rescue them and bring them home. The Untold Story continues right after this. So we're hearing a lot of um, dire sounding language coming out of the White House today in a Washington Post report. They're talking about the fact that they officials saying that they are very, very, very concerned about this spiraling out of control in the Middle East. And that that, you know, obviously is, is dictating the way the United States is talking to Israel and, uh, you know, all of these different entities are, are dealing with each other. What do you see happening here? Well, we have two carrier battle groups headed into the med. Uh, one is there already, I believe. The other one, if it's not there, it's going to be there shortly. I would suspect we have another one creeping up into the, the Persian Gulf. I haven't heard that yet, but I would suspect that that's the case to put more pressure on Iran. Um, but... We'll see. This is the if you can keep it contained to Gaza. But once again, 
the situation has now changed because essentially you have a garrison in Gaza that wants to destroy the state that's just on the other side of those walls. And then you have Hezbollah to the north. Of course, you have uh, the West Bank to the east. But how long does Israel now wait until their enemy, Hezbollah, and Lebanon uh, acquires more rockets, acquires more weapons. Right now, it's reported they have 150,000 rockets pointed at Israel. Um, with what happened over the weekend, do we think that Israel will wait until they have 200,000 rockets, 300,000 rockets? Once again, it seems like the dynamic has changed. And even if things stay relatively contained to Gaza in the short term, I would suspect that once that's taken care of, Israel will turn their sights uh, to the north, to Lebanon, to Hezbollah in particular, and uh, and change their policies toward that organization. Because up to this point, it has been a policy of tolerable violence, meaning they've lived with acceptable levels of violence uh, from out of Gaza and out of Hezbollah to the north. But over the last two and a half weeks, I think that has changed. So regardless of containing this to Gaza in the short term, I think those sites will be focused on Hezbollah uh, after they've taken care of Gaza. But once again, that is that all is uh, uh, based on things staying contained in the short term. And uh, and of course, that is if there are a lot uh, is that's up to Iran. So there, there's some reports today that the United States has some concerns at least, you know, none of these are attributed to individuals, but, you know, talking about officials um, in the United States government, Pentagon, White House, that they're concerned that Israel cannot handle militarily these enemies in both places, in Gaza and in Hezbollah. What do you think? Well, Israel has had uh, militarily and with their intelligence service this aura, not of invincibility, but a mystique surrounding them from defeating numerically superior enemies in the past, uh, enemies that had uh, better weapon systems in the past. So so they've had that. And I think they've relied on that to, in one way, shape or form as a deterrence. But what uh, Saturday, uh, October 7th, taught us was that there are chinks in that armor on the intelligence side and on the military mm -hmm. side of the house. The intelligence side not being able to, uh, not understanding that this was coming, or if they knew that it was coming, not being able uh, to, to predict and destroy it ahead of time. And then for the IDF, for the Israeli military, not being able to respond in time, uh, not being able to respond in a in a time that would that made uh, made a difference to a lot of the people that are living in that Gaza envelope. Um, so with those two things in mind, I would think that they are looking at their intelligence and military capabilities very hard right now, because uh, sometimes you do end up believing your own press. Um, and if that's the case, I'm sure they will do a thorough evaluation and will want to keep it to one organization at a time, meaning Hamas first, Hezbollah second. But when pushed into the corner, they don't have anywhere else to go. And that's the thing to remember about Israel. It's not like the French in Algeria who had France to go back to. It's not like the British in Kenya who had Great Britain to go back to. There's nowhere else for them to go. And uh, as a society, they've managed to become united over the last two weeks when they were very divided before based on judicial reforms in their, uh, in their country. So the Hezbollah and Hamas uh, have managed to unite a divided Israel. And, uh, and that is very dangerous for them. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about, and, it, and it, it all really is very much in context of what we're talking about now. And I think this is the kind of story that Americans, especially younger Americans, will learn a lot from getting a sense of what happened in Beirut in 1983 when we lost 200 U.S. Marines. 
Yeah. Tell us the background of that story and, and that attack and give us a little sense of what you write about in these three series, th these three series books. Yeah, so it's uh, there are lessons in the pages of history, as we know, and what we have a hard time doing as a as a nation is taking those lessons and apply them going forward as wisdom. Somehow we neglect to do that time and time again. And the 1983 Beirut barracks bombing is really one of the seminal events when it comes to our relationship with the Middle East, uh, terrorist organizations, and Iran. And it's really the opening salvo of a of a war that we continue to fight today. And that started on April 18th, 1983, with the bombing of the U.S. Embassy. 63 people were killed there, 17 Americans. Uh, and then 188 days later came October 23rd, 1983, where we lost 241 service members, uh, 220 Marines, uh, 18 sailors, and three soldiers. Um, 350 of them were sleeping in uh, in their barracks when a truck bomb crashed through Constantina wire, through sandbags, ended up in the lobby and detonated. Uh, it al is also one of the greatest rescue stories in modern history. Uh, the people that rode, were all sleeping on the roof, rode that bomb, what rode that explosion down, survived, and then went to work trying to dig their friends out of that rubble with their bare hands, with K-bars, with shovels. Uh, absolutely incredible. I just spoke to the Beirut Veterans of America uh, a couple nights ago for the 40th anniversary and got to meet a lot of the people that I've been writing about in this upcoming book, got to put faces to those names, got to talk to family members who lost loved ones in that attack. And uh, what we owe them is uh, is to remember those lessons. It's just so heartbreaking, uh, and we neglected to learn the lessons. And what I what what I didn't know as part of this uh, is that the same battalion, so it's First uh, Battalion, Eighth Marine Regiment, that was in those barracks that day, was also at Abbey Gate. In right. Afghanistan. So you have Beirut barracks bombing when they are put in a tactically disadvantageous position. Same thing that happened in Afghanistan. The same group of Marines put in a tactically disadvantageous position when there were other options available. So uh, so that that part is just heartbreaking. Yeah. You and know. it haunted President Reagan till the end of his to the end of his days. In his memoir, he wrote uh, he wrote every day since the death of those boys. I have prayed for them and their loved ones. Mm. And I talked to Michael Reagan about it, and he brought that up with me as well. And then as part of this research, I was able to find Reagan's notes. And what he did when he pulled the Marines out of Lebanon in March of 1984, he sat down and he wrote out some notes and his thoughts. And he gave them to White House speechwriters, hoping that they would include them in some future speech. But they were never included in a future speech. So uh, we found those notes, me and my co-author on this, James Scott, military historian, Pulitzer Prize finalist, amazing guy. We found his notes in his personal files. And this is what he wrote. I think it's no one's ever heard this up until this point. Um, he said, the goal we sought in that troubled place was worthy of their best, and they gave their best. They were no part of our failure to achieve that goal. In the end, hatred centuries old were too much for all of us. Yes, our Marines are coming home, but only because they did all that could be done. Semper Fi, and God bless them. Very moving, and um, a story that really needs to be told. So I'm, I'm grateful that you're telling it. I know someone who lost a brother in, in that attack, and it is, it, it's an extraordinarily brutal story. And I think one of the things that really stands out in this moment is when he talks about hatred centuries old. And it's, it's really thousands of years old in many ways if you go far enough back. Yeah. What do you think about that when you look at what's happening today? Can, can these fissures 
that have existed for so many centuries, can they be healed and can they be brokered by the United States and other players ever, do you think, Jack? We've been trying it for decades with the Camp David Accords, of course. Um, Gaza is, of course, ruled, governed uh, by Hamas. Um, they were elected. Uh, so I, I don't know the answer to that question. That's the tough one. And we've been trying it. Uh, we were getting a little closer by normalizing relations with uh, other Middle Eastern countries, uh, specifically Saudi Arabia. Uh, and part of this attack was in uh, to try to derail those talks, those agreements, yeah. uh, that normalization with other countries in the region. And uh, I think it'll derail it for a little bit, but I think it'll come, it, it's just a matter of time until we get back to the table on normalizing relations, particularly between Israel and uh, Saudi Arabia, with the United States offering uh, very robust defense uh, packages to both nations, I would guess. But uh, but we'll see. It's uh, it's tough. Back in Lebanon, those guys were dealing with, I think, 18 different factions um, and trying to keep all that straight as peacekeepers when they've been trained as war fighters and then dropped into this mix. And uh, there were essentially put in a next to impossible yeah. situation. And uh, we do that time and time again with our service members. And it's uh, that's the heartbreaking part. Well, that's my last question for you. Before I let you go, we have 19 bases all throughout the Middle East. And obviously the biggest concern at the White House and the Pentagon right now, we've seen uh, attacks in Iraq in Yemen, our folks, uh, it's been, they took, um, our service members took nine hours of um, incoming that they had to fight off in Yemen. Thankfully, nobody was um, killed or injured in that, but they are obviously very concerned that these hot spots through that area put our people in, in serious danger right now, Jack. Your thought on that before, before I let you go. Oh, yeah. It's always been a, a, a dangerous part of the world, uh, and not just there, but other places around the world. If we remember uh, the 80s with American servicemen being targeted at the uh, the nightclubs they went to and cafes that they went to, which in part led to our bombing of Libya, which in turn led to bombing of Pan Am 103. Um, so it's it's I don't know the answer. And it is such a tough part of the world to, one, understand uh, through a Western lens. You really have to look at it through a non-Western lens and really have to study the enemy. We keep falling prey to imperial hubris. We did it in Afghanistan. We did it in Iraq. Um, we try to do the same things over and over, year in, year out. Um, we have a defense industry that benefits from that. And you have people going in front of Congress, high-ranking military people that ask for the same things over and over again, more troops, uh, more more funding. Uh, we're, we're almost there. They're making progress. The same things were uttered for 20 years in front of Congress and in front of the American people um, and with the results that we got to see play out in August of 2021. And then we see these results if we look back at uh, October of 1983 and we look at these different attacks all throughout really our involvement in the Middle East. So it's uh, it's one of those things that is a very, very difficult situation to, to deal with, particularly if we're looking at it through, through our lens. And so uh, my hope is we can be more educated and then be a little more wise going forward. Well, that, that is uh, a hope that you have put into your efforts, into these books and stories and your podcast and the new books, uh, a series called Targeted, the 1983 Beirut barracks bombing. And that is coming in the fall of 2024. Good luck with your work on that project, Jack, and we thank you so much for your service to our country. You have experienced all of these things on the front lines yourself, 
and uh, you have a unique perspective um, that none of us have. So we're grateful to you for that. And thanks for talking with us today on The Untold Story. It's great to have you with us, Jack. Thank you so much for having me on. Take care. You've been listening to The Untold Story. I'm Martha McCallum. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Make sure to rate and review. For more podcasts, go to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free with the Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app.